0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two Asian topics today. First, an update from Brian Hugh on the protests in Hong Kong, and then Kavita Krishnan reports on what the Indian government is doing to Kashmir. Protests broke out at the end of March in Hong Kong, initially directed against a proposal to make it easier to extradite locals to China to face criminal charges. This excited fears that the jurisdiction's autonomy was under threat. But it also ignited a whole lot of other discontents, including material concerns like low wages, high rents, miserably cramped living conditions, and grim prospects for the young. The demonstrations have been huge, on occasion drawing a third of Hong Kong's population. They're the biggest protests since the so-called Umbrella Movement of 2014, which are aimed at proposals to tighten Chinese control over the jurisdiction's elections. They ended after a couple of months without any concessions from the government. We had Brian Hugh, that's spelled H I O E, on the show in June to explain what's been going on. Here we are a couple of months later, and the unrest continues, so I thought a return engagement might be useful. Hugh is one of the founding editors of New Bloom, which, in its own words, is an online magazine featuring radical perspectives on Taiwan and the Asia Pacific. He's an American of Taiwanese origin who grew up and was educated in New York. Brian Hugh. The protests go on. Their longevity is impressive. There was a little narrative in our press uh, recently that things went violent for a little while, and now they're back to being peaceful. How would you um, assess the state of things just on, on that level right now?
1: Um, I think that things are violent in the sense that there are clashes of the police that happen often uh, now, and just these clashes occur with every protest. And it's become this kind of pattern in which you'll have maybe a more peaceful protest during the day, on the weekend, that night. Things start to get violent. That's when the police feel emboldened to take more actions against protesters. Another issue that has uh, occurred since the last time we talked was that now there are pro Beijing gangsters that come out and will attack demonstrators, usually to little action from uh, police. I mean, yesterday night actually there was a stabbing incident. Uh, Three people were stabbed, and one person is in critical condition—a journalist—in this uh, kind of leaden wall that was set up. This. uh, thing where people post sticky notes with supportive messages and that kind of thing. And so things have definitely taken a downturn. Uh, But there was an incident involving the attempted occupation of Hong Kong International Airport, there were instances in that in which there was a man who was suspected to be an undercover cop who was cornered by the crowd and detained and a man that was a Global Times journalist, uh, which is China's, one of China's state-run media outlets. Um, it's one of their more nationalistic, openly nationalistic ones. But then over the weekend, the last set of protests in which uh, 1.7 million people participated, um, there were no clashes with the police, actually. The police did not fire tear gas either, which is quite surprising given the escalating level of police violence.
0: These thugs are going around beating up protesters. Are they freelancing or are they uh, operating on the uh, initiative of the authorities?
1: Um, It's a good question and nobody can really say for sure, but the kind of experts in triads in Hong Kong generally think that they're being paid off by the government. I think there was even one uh, article which claims the going rate of such an attack, such as one of the ones that occurred a few weeks ago. Like the first attack might have been like over one million U.S. dollars. And there have been claims that, for example, the gangsters sometimes will be unhappy that they haven't been paid or things like that. And so that uh, there's a lawmaker, like a pro-Beijing lawmaker in Hong Kong that is thought to have very close ties with gangsters. And his the graves of his parents were defaced. And there's even claims going around that these were actually the gangsters who did this, that, uh, that they were upset about not being paid or something like that. I mean, it could just be a claim to, to say that, oh, it's not the protesters or whatever. But you do have this, this kind of discussion occurring.
0: There are pictures circulating of armored vehicles uh, gathering on the Chinese side of the Hong Kong border, you know, hints of uh, an impending crackdown. How seriously do you take that?
1: It's a really good question. And the thing is, no one can really say, because I think this is a kind of unprecedented situation. And so then you have the response, which is to say that, oh, a crackdown is imminent and whatever, it's need to be careful, which can be somewhat alarmist. And then you have the claims that, oh, this is not a big deal at all. China would never invade because of the potential costs. And I think personally, I just have no idea because there is no precedence for this. It is true that there, there are armored personnel carriers in uh, in Shenzhen and in Guangdong province um, because of the fact that this is confirmed through satellite imagery and there were reporters that did go there to verify that they are in the stadium and there are videos released by the Chinese government of drilling uh, by paramilitary forces uh, claimed to be police and not actually the People's Liberation Army and the, 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 the videos of the drilling show them deploying against protesters that look very similar to how Hong Kong protesters dress wearing masks and wearing black in these videos that they carry signs and shout slogans in in Cantonese and seems to be directed at the protesters. So it could be just intimidation. It's also just unclear what the exact numbers of these troops are. I mean, there's claims of the troop buildup. Uh, The Chinese government has claimed over 100,000, like 170,000 police were drilling in Guangdong um, to celebrate the the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And it's definitely that clear that the government wants to intimidate protesters. And then you have, for example, the the Global Times uh, releasing an editorial over the weekend claiming that the protests over the weekend were peaceful and not violent because of the fact that this, this drilling is effective. And it's, it's just a question, would they actually deploy in Hong Kong? Because that stands not only to turn Hong Kong to a war zone, it can affect China, too, economically in that sense. Uh, right now, it's also in the middle of the U.S.-China trade war, so that would affect negotiations. It would look bad on China. And the effect on the Chinese economy would also uh, – there There would be shockwaves there, too, um, if they ever did this.
0: And the U.S. position, uh, Trump, you know, saying contradictory things, he hopes, hopes things just work <laughs> out, you know. D- does this have any effect on the protests?
1: Yes, it does. And I think that's a, it's a, one of the big things. You do have the usual Republican hawks that are always uh, on this issue and trying to use Hong Kong as a point to attack China, such as Marco Rubio is the big example. Donald Trump recently jumped into fray recently by saying that if Xi Jinping just sits down and has a, has a uh, sit-down and meets personally with protesters and everything will be resolved, which is actually a shift from his previous rhetoric in which he claimed that this was an internal matter for China, and he actually referred to the protests as riots. And this actually does have a big deal in Hong Kong because one of the demands is that the charge of rioting against protesters is withdrawn for anyone that has been arrested so far. That's one of the key demands of the movement. Uh, rioting, quote unquote, is a charge that carries up to 10 years in jail. And so, you know, Donald Trump saying that the Hong Kong protesters are writers then China can say, well, look at America, you know, they're saying that the protesters are writers too. And, you know, look at America as the other world superpower uh, The policing practices there. It's like this, this, and this. And therefore now we're justified in calling of you rioters and giving these prison sentences. So it does actually have an effect. And I think with Trump, now saying that this is an issue apparently at stake for the trade negotiations, I mean, obviously it's just using it as a, a, a chess piece or, or raising this as a way to put another uh, bargaining chip in negotiations. But it does have an effect in, in how China reacts, I think, and they will probably evaluate that more carefully. China is no doubt aware of the fact that these Republican hawks have differing rhetoric than uh, Donald Trump in that they've been pretty consistently uh, attacking China on this issue, whereas Trump just kind of goes back and forth in this contradictory
0: and let's talk about some of the larger political issues. Uh, there's a piece in The Nation, I believe it was, on The Nation's website, arguing that um, China really just doesn't need Hong Kong anymore. For a long time, uh, Hong Kong served as uh, China's portal to the capitalist world, and it really just no longer serves that function. Uh, and uh, Hong Kong is, is dispensable from the Chinese point of view. Uh, what about that?
1: It's a question, because I think that's also the big question on the minds of everyone in Hong Kong. For example, it's phrased that with the legal changes that would have been pushed for by the extradition bill, or with the deterioration of uh, political freedoms in Hong Kong in the past uh, 20 or so years, that this would just uh, turn Hong Kong into another Chinese city, that it would be no different. Uh, there would no longer be one country, two systems. The original claim by China uh, with the 1997 handover was that Hong Kong's system of government would remain unchanged for 50 years until 2047. And it's questioned then because the rise of China economically is something that does have Hong Kongers questioning whether that it is a distanced city, that it is no longer the gate to the capitalist world. And so then China has no reason not to, for example, come in with military force because then Hong Kong can just, uh, its roles replaced, for example, by Shanghai. And it's a question I think nobody really knows. Um, You do have a claim circulating on the left, for example, sometimes that Hong Kong would never uh, have military intervention by the PLA because the forces of capital are just too concentrated there. And that is a question, too, because then if there is an invasion of Hong Kong, a lot of finance capital is centralized there. Um, just also because of the extradition bill and the current unrest, a lot of uh, oligarchs are looking at getting out and fleeing to Singapore would actually be the, be the next likely destination. So actually, that's, I think that's the biggest uncertain factor. Is it dispensable or not? And that really plays a key role in the calculus of whether China would actually come in with military force or not.
0: And what about the, um, the capitalists in Hong Kong? What kind of attitude are they taking towards the protests?
1: It depends because there is a split. Um, and that, that's one of the interesting things is that they were less interested, I think, in the umbrella movement. And historically, the oligarchs have uh, not been so opposed to China's interference. But there's the terror now, I think, because of uh, China is not as economic stable as it was a few, even a few years ago. And so even just releasing information on that economic stability can get you in trouble. And so I think these oligarchs are somewhat worried, too, that they could be uh, faced charges in China on just uh, trumped up charges or get into trouble because of their businesses. So I think they're actually panicking much more this time. Uh, Li ka uh, Hong Kong's richest man, took out an ad calling for an end to violence and a return to peace and calm in uh, leading Hong Kong newspapers. That's something that he did uh, last week. That's also a sign of where the kind of all of our class is feeling, I think. Um, I think there's probably a split, though, because there's the concern that if Chinese laws imposed so quickly in Hong Kong, then they themselves could actually potentially face consequences. Um, I think that's different from the last time. But to them, I think Hong Kong is disposable. They can actually just get out and go to Singapore or somewhere else.
0: And then what about foreign business interests in Hong Kong? Are they taking a position?
1: Um, it depends. And that's actually been a issue so far. Um, for example, the franchises of foreign brands in Hong Kong have actually taken a stand on the protests before. The, the two big examples are Pizza Hut, the American fast food chain, and Pokari Sweat, which is a Japanese uh, sports drink. And they uh, broke their advertising deals with TVB, one of the pro Beijing television networks, because of their very slanted coverage of the protests. And then they themselves got into trouble for doing that because of the fact that they also want to operate in the Chinese market. And then you might have this uh, nationalistic backlash against Pizza Hut and Pokari Sweat because of of taking a stand on this Hong Kong issue. And you also have uh, international franchises, for example, uh, Taiwanese franchises that are in Hong Kong, and individual stores have. Uh, closed shop, for example, franchise stores to to support the protests, and then they get in trouble with the Chinese. Uh, on, it becomes a, a viral post on Chinese social media that the store is support of the protests, and then the company disavows the store and terminates the contract and that kind of thing. But I think in general, just business, it is in their interest to side with China that is the larger market. So at the end of the day, I don't think they will be in support of the protests.
0: I'm speaking with Brian Hugh, an editor with New Bloom. And now what about the political complexion of uh, the, uh, the protests? Let's start at one point in particular. There's some people on the American left who are like seeing uh, images of Pepe and saying this is a right-wing movement. They see flags of Britain and uh, the United States being waved uh, and they say this is, uh, this is kind of a pro-imperialist movement and drifting uh, towards support to, uh, for China because you know, that's the anti-imperialist position. What about that?
1: I think it's very interesting because it reflects this sort of insularity or you might even say Eurocentrism because that there's the failure to understand that there's another enemy or another empire in the world outside of American empire. And I think then you have this kind of amplification of the random person in the protest that shows up the British flag. And it's like, oh, well, these protesters are just hoping for a return to the British colonial period. It was not democratic then. And so they're just infected by this Western ideology. I think it's very few people that, that bring these flags, but uh, protests do have generally left more left-wing and more right-wing elements. And protests are messy in that sense. And I don't think that one person being a flag that represents all the protesters. And I think it's also kind of interesting, this nostalgia for the British colonial period. Um, sometimes you do have the case in which when there are two successive colonial regimes, the first it's a colonial regime becomes uh, romanticized afterwards because it seems better compared to the brutality of the second regime. Now, this happens in Taiwan, for example, regarding the Japanese, and then after the, the Gomei Dang came from China, um, the Japanese period is nostalgized. And I think also it's interesting to note that with the British flag, the nostalgia is actually for the last governorship of Hong Kong under Chris Patton, in which the claim was that now Hong Kong, as we move towards the 1997 handover, this is the first time in Hong Kong history that Hong Kong will be ruled by Hong Kongers. And so there's this nostalgia for this period of widening democratic freedoms in which things were, looked like they were getting better. It looked like things were moving towards Hong Kongers being able to decide their future in this period of returning to China through the handover, um, which then did not prove to be true. Um, then on the point of Pepe the Pig, Pepe the pig does have a different resonance in Hong Kong in which...
0: Pepe is a frog.
1: uh, Sorry, I meant to say frog. But Pepe the frog, um, the symbol of the alt-right, never actually had that appropriation by right-wing forces in Hong Kong. And so Pepe did not become this uh, figure associated with far-right hate. And I think that these symbols of of, uh, the alt-right in America did not... There's no awareness of the shift happening in Hong Kong. And so then Pepe the pig... Sorry, Pepe the frog is, is uh, still just this kind of neutral symbol that, that protesters will use. And there's actually an email circulating today in which somebody emailed the article on the New York Times about this, the fact that Pepe the Frog is, uh, is always used in this way in Hong Kong and there's no shift to the creator of uh, Pepe the Frog. And, and then he responded, oh, it's good to see that my symbol is not being used as a symbol of hate and as a symbol of the people in Hong Kong.
0: More generally, what are the political demands or aspirations of of the protests, or is it just a a mixed bag?
1: It's become a mixed bag because I think that things have moved so much beyond the demand for the extradition bill to be withdrawn. Uh, The government did not actually fully withdraw the bill. It claims that the bill is dead, but it doesn't take further action to prevent it from being put on the agenda in in future legislative sessions. Uh, So there's that. There's still that one demand of fully withdrawing the bill. But then there's just a more general demand for democracy now in Hong Kong. Uh, it, it's actually, the movement has moved beyond the scale and the the framework of the original one demand of just repealing the bill. That's this kind of broader aspirational demand towards democracy, whatever that means exactly, however that is to be enacted. And there's also the demand for accountability for police violence that's become a major part of it because it has become such an issue that police shoot out the eyes of protesters, there are cases of sexual assaults of, of uh, protesters. There's an incident today in which, did not relate to the protest, by which police tortured a 60-year-old man in a hospital, and this was filmed on security camera. And so there's a call for police accountability, and also the call that demonstrators be gen- granted general amnesty, because on these charges of, quote-unquote, rioting, uh, protesters could be facing 10 years in jail, and on charges of unlawful gathering, uh, you could face five years in jail. And so a lot of these are young people and they're facing uh, significant jail time, um, 10 years possibly. And so the demand is for general amnesty. And this is, these are demands that the Hong Kong government seems to have no interest in meeting and compromising on. So it has not backed down in any way. And it just continues to soak outrage. Um, there's been a lot of these kind of press conferences in which the government has come out and to the surprise of everybody, just announced nothing. And so that just soaks further anger
0: and just happens over and over again. And any sense of how many people have been arrested or in custody?
1: It's thought over 700, um, and I think the total amount of injuries is thought to be over 1,000. Um, the police have started holding daily press conferences in order to try and uh, navigate their turbulent relation with the public, but this has not always helped, um, for example, announcing the amount of tear gas they used in a day, and then you find out that they used more tear gas in one day than they did over the past months of demonstrations so far and things like that.
0: I see complaints that— The Western left has not shown any interest uh, in in these Hong Kong protests, in contrast, protests elsewhere, which are fervently supported, but uh, not this time. Why do you think that there's so little interest coming from the Western left? And how much difference would it make if, if there were more?
1: I do think it's true that there's a disproportionate lack of coverage of Hong Kong from the Western left. And I think um, some of it is just because of these, again, like stereotypes that the protesters are all just yearning for British colonialism or that they're right wing somehow for opposing China. And I think there's this political imagination of China as left wing or having a left wing government based on the history of of Mao's China, um, which does pervade parts of the left. And I think it is very the the most unusual thing is that these might be some of the largest uh, demonstrations in by proportion in, in modern history, two million protesting in Hong Kong, that's around 30 percent of the population. And so this is this is massive. And so sociologically or politically, these are things the left really needs to be uh, focused on. But I think one of the challenges may be language barrier. And I think then, again, there's these myths about China and its failure to understand that there's other empires out there in the world besides America, um, which are actually quite occluding of us. And I think that actually the silence of left then allows the right to dominate the conversation. And that's why you have groups in Hong Kong that think of themselves as right-wing or will label themselves as right-wing when their politics are not actually substantively right-wing, but they they think of left-wing as China. And so they're opposed to China and so they'll be right and things like that. Um, And I think that that actually just weakens the left in Hong Kong. And that's actually been an issue. This is actually a, a point of intervention. This is a place in which you know, the international left should be making its voice heard and that will actually be beneficial to the development of a political left in Hong Kong, a radical left. And so uh, that's, that's a little challenge.
0: How much of a left is there now in Hong Kong?
1: Um, Hong Kong is quite interesting because there's a history of uh, leftism which is associated with China. Uh, for example, in the 1967 uh, leftist riots, and that's, that is deeply tied to Chinese nationalism. Uh, Hong Kong also has a history of sectarianism. Sometimes, for example, uh, groups that ended up from China in Hong Kong... Sometimes, which them become very sectarian in nature, or even the kind of uh, anglophone groups that end up in Hong Kong, I think, because of their connection to Britain. There's also groupings such as Left 21, which emerged in recent years. Uh, but then you also have the criticism of leftists as being uh, left hearts. So that's, that's usually how it's translated the term is left plastic. Um, so the idea that the left is to focus on these uh, human rights issues or issues of social justice in a very occluding way, very narrowly focused and not actually concerned with these issues of sovereignty, of cheering democratic freedom and so forth. And then you do have a lot of the left in Hong Kong, which is actually very focused on China. And again, because of the historical relationship. Or just the, the view of, of China's association with leftism and so forth. And so they're not always concerned with local Hong Kong issues. And so that that actually leads to these difficulties, I think, building up a Hong Kong left. And I think that the international left sometimes actually just plays into this uh, kind of internal dynamic as well.
0: Um, what about organizing for the longer term? Suppose the authorities just like. Waited out? Would the protests burn out? Or um, are there you know, institutions uh, being created that uh, could uh, you know, sustain this in the forms of an agenda with demands and organization?
1: It's very hard to say because the question is. Uh I think that I th- I do think that the, the authorities, uh, the Chinese government, is hoping that eventually the protests fizzle away and lose energy and steam, similar to what happened with the Umbrella Movement, um, which fizzled out after around 79 days. And so we're around at that, that point now in which it's the demonstration under their 11, 11th week. And so we're actually reaching that point in which this is becoming a longer movement than the Umbrella Movement, although it's, it's many, much, much larger on, on scale by many orders of magnitude. And then the other issue is that China has the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC coming up, and therefore China does not want to have Hong Kong going on, um, these protests still happening in Hong Kong at that point in time that will look bad for China's international reputation. And so then there's the possibility that China then will come in force to put down things and so forth. That's actually, that's raised as one of the possible scenarios. It's also the challenge, though, I think, of developing institutions out of this that could continue the uh, demonstrations which continue push for this political agenda, is that it is primarily a leaderless and movement because of the fact that uh, there's fear of leaders being targeted, of surveillance, of faces being recognized. And the, the, after the Umbrella movement, for example, there were organizations that emerged and political leaders that developed. And then they became targeted by China because they were and the Hong Kong government because they were so publicly visible. And that's why this time it is very much an unstructured movement with no clear leaders in which everyone is masked. And so it's actually very hard to have these organizations come out into the open and organize openly. Um, That being said, there probably will be new organizations that emerge after this movement in some form, but they face political crackdown. Um, For example, the Hong Kong National Party, the government claims that they were selling drugs uh, for some reason, and also that they, they were having a, uh, what they claim was the largest bomb plot in the history of Hong Kong. And these are suspected to be Trump-up charges. It's suspected that the bombs were planted in space owned by the Hong Kong National Party, and that uh, it, it's also just it's impossible that this was the largest bomb plot in Hong Kong history when there was thousands of incidents during the leftist riots, actually, which did involve explosives. And so um, there's that. There's always a the possibility of just arrest at this point. And that's a challenge of organizing, coming out into the open.
0: What are the chances that China could make some kinds of concessions that could uh, take some of the steam out of the movement? Or are they afraid of making any kind of concessions uh, for not only what it would do uh, in Hong Kong, but also might have a blowback at home?
1: I think that's one of the issues. There's the fear that if you do back up in the face of protests, then people realize that protests is a successful way of getting the Chinese government to listen to demands. And I think um, China tends to adopt uniform policy towards any territory or, or country that it considers as part of its own, uh, such as Tibet or Xinjiang or Taiwan and Hong Kong, for example, trying to pacify separatism through uh, economic incentives. And it's feared that then if protests are successful in one place, this will lead other places to learn and that could prove an issue for it. Um, Taiwan is one example. I mean, there is actually a kind of exchange of knowledge between the Umbrella Movement and sunflower Movement in 2014. These were movements that occurred in the same year, uh, first sunflower then Umbrella. And even this time around, you do have activists that cite the example of Taiwan and demonstrators in Taiwan. For example, the, the attempt to occupy the Legislative Council of Hong Kong on July 1st and... Which, which happened in Taiwan during the uh, Sunfire Movement in 2014. The, that was an occupation of the legislature for one month um, by students. And they actually just, in their slogans, once they got into the legislative council, raised the Sunfire Movement. Um, and so there, there's the fear then that other places can learn from this. And I think the uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is generally afraid of backing down for fear of showing weakness. That's true in Hong Kong, it's also true elsewhere.
0: So, what should we expect in the coming days? In the coming days, it's really unknown, I think, uh, as it
1: has generally been. But I think this is actually the very critical point for the movement because of the fact that China will once finish by October before the 70th anniversary of the uh, founding of the People's Republic of China. And so things could get could escalate more. I think police violence is just getting further and further out of hand. Uh, levels of violence beyond what was seen previously uh, in terms of tear gas fired, uh, police beating people in sorry, be a Hospital, the stabbing incident and because the thing that has not happened actually to date is deaths caused by, like mass deaths caused by police. And that's that's actually the scary thing that, that might actually happen. Um, you had suicides during these protests before, and you had a lot of people that are in critical condition because of protests, but there has not been a death. And actually, when there is a death that's publicized very widely, I don't know what will happen, that this could provoke rage and, and push the protest, protesters to take uh, extreme forms of direct action. And so I think it's any, anyone's guess, but I don't see the pressure... Becoming uh, less anytime soon.
0: That was Brian Hugh, a Hong Kong-based editor with New Bloom, an online magazine. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Beethoven's Bagatelle Opus 126 number 1 performed by Alfred Brendel. Next, Kashmir. On August 5th, the government of India suspended Article 370 of its constitution, which gave special status to the state of Jammu and Kashmir, the only one of the country's 29 states with a Muslim majority population. The state, which once enjoyed some degree of autonomy, is now under lockdown enforced by paramilitary forces. Why? Here to answer that question is Kavita Krishnan, a leader of the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist. And that trailing modifier is important, she reminded me, since there are several with similar names. She's also the editor of its journal, Liberation. She was recently part of a delegation that visited Kashmir to see how it was faring under the Hindu nationalist government's now direct control. Kavita Krishnan. People might not really be familiar with the legal status of Kashmir going into this crisis. Uh, Could you just lay that out first?
2: Yes, I will. In August 1947, India and Pakistan were both uh, formed after achieving freedom from uh, the British colonial rule. And uh, this partition between India and Pakistan happened And what happened was, uh, to put it really in short, was that most of the Muslim majority areas that were on the borders between India and Pakistan were given to Pakistan. They went to Pakistan. So that means that that is the reason why East Bengal, which is today Bangladesh, uh, also was given to Pakistan, because these were Muslim majority areas and they were outside the mainland India. Right. So. Kashmir was an exception where it was a Muslim majority area, but Kashmiri Muslims and Hindus both identified as Kashmiris. And their Hindu ruler was not really, he was acting uh, sort of pricey. He didn't want to be part of India. He didn't want to be part of Pakistan. He thought he would be an independent Hindu ruler. And uh, he even toyed with ideas of uh, sort of going with Nepal, which is a Hindu kingdom and uh, all of that. So, from August to October 1947, Jammu and Kashmir, which was a princely state, was not part of either India or Pakistan. It was independent. And then uh, in October 1947, there were certain tribes, uh, militia, which were backed by Pakistan, which attacked Jammu and Kashmir and tried to annex it uh, to Pakistan. At that time, the ruler Maharaja Hari Singh of Jammu and Kashmir rushed to India, met the Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, and Uh, he then signed what is called the Instrument of Accession. We have to remember here that the Muslim majority people of Kashmir, both Muslims and Hindus, but it was certainly Muslim majority, and their leader Sheikh Abdullah were basically uh, also putting pressure on Maharaja Hari Singh to uh, sign this Instrument of Accession with India. So although this was a Muslim majority principality on the borders of India and could easily have... Are gone with Pakistan. They thought that their Kashmiri identity might be safer inside a secular democratic federal India rather than a theocratic pakistan which would sort of iron out all the kashmiri identity and just say oh these are all muslims right so basically uh, then this instrument of accession was signed the instrument of accession though it clearly says that uh, this is this does not bind us to the indian uh, constitution and that um, some of the Conditions were that at some point, the will of the Kashmiri people would be ascertained via a plebiscite. Okay? So after the instrument of accession, this Article 370, which is an article of the Indian Constitution, that came into being. How? As a contract, as a pact between the Kashmiri leadership of the time and the Indian national leadership of the time, which was Nehru and uh, India's first home minister, Sardar Patel. So Article 370 actually then goes into the promises uh, to the Kashmiri people that you will have autonomy, you will be able to have your own flag, your own prime minister. So you will be a highly autonomous state, which is a part of the Indian Federal Union of States. All right. So in a way, I mean, uh, this was like, uh, you know, think about it a little bit like, the United States uh, has uh, so many states which have, uh, you know, which can have their own laws and all of that but to some extent, right? So Kashmir also similarly, Jammu and Kashmir had that kind of uh, status. But what happened subsequently was that. Article 370 and uh, these promises of autonomy and the promises of ascertaining the will of the Kashmiri people, these were whittled down and these were uh, sort of done away with over time. And uh, in fact, uh, this popular leader, Sheikh Abdullah, who was one of the main reasons, uh, one of the main forces behind uh, Kashmir choosing to go with India, Uh, He uh, was uh, imprisoned for a very long time. Uh, Sheikh Abdullah was the person who had said, I share a faith with uh, Jinnah, who founded Pakistan, but I share a dream with Nehru. And this Sheikh Abdullah was imprisoned by Jawaharlal Nehru and his government quite illegally for a very long period of time. So essentially, India agreed to a plebiscite when they thought that the Kashmiri people would vote for remaining with India. But when that matter became a little bit in doubt, they uh, withdrew that promise. Subsequently, this Article 370 uh, has been sort of hollowed out. It remained only as a symbol. a very tattered symbol because, in fact, Jammu and Kashmir, in fact, enjoyed less autonomy than other states in India. Constitutional lawyer A.G. Noorani has said that it has been uh, subjected to humiliation and of the kind that no other Indian state has been subjected to. But still, it was an important symbol because it was what India showed in international fora in the UN and so on uh, when the, regarding the Kashmir dispute to bolster the legitimacy of its claims over Kashmir. So Article 370 was very important to that. Now, the Indian government under Mr. Modi has done away with that. It's quite brazenly saying we have done away with that bridge or that link between Kashmir and India that had some kind of contractual consensual uh, meaning to it. We have basically, we just control Kashmir against the will of its people.
0: They've been moving in this direction for for, uh, several years, correct?
2: Indian governments for a long time, before the Modi government came to power in its first term in 2014, had a different Kashmir policy. I'm not saying that Kashmir policy was great, but that Kashmir policy was a sort of dual policy where they would maintain this uh, talk of, oh, we are winning the hearts and minds of Kashmiri people. There's autonomy there. There's electoral participation there. There are these parties that participate in elections and form government and so on and so forth. And of course, Article 370 was a big part of that infrastructure of those claims. We have to remember that a very large part of Kashmiri people had already lost faith in these promises. They were boycotting elections. They had uh, scant respect for these parties that did participate in elections. And they said that essentially this middle ground and these arguments for being remaining part of India and all of that are not really uh, Followed up because the, that policy was accompanied by terrible widespread human rights violations, so mass graves, custodial killings, disappearances all these were thick on the ground, custodial rapes and with complete impunity uh, with no semblance of uh, you know any courts or any any uh, human rights uh, fora or whatever stepping up to the stepping up to the plate and trying to redress any of these things so uh, this is how things were till. 2014. Now, the Modi government and its uh, the, uh, Mo- Mr. Modi belongs to the uh, Hindu majoritarian Bharati Janta Party. And the Bharati Janta Party is the political wing of a, basically a fascist sort of militia organization called the Rashtri Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS. Uh, which is uh, the SS in the name is no coincidence. Uh, They did model their name as well as their acronym, as well as their organization itself on Mussolini's black shirts and on uh, Hitler's, uh, on the Nazi militias. Yeah,
0: I wanted to emphasize this point. When you say fascist, that's not just a a reckless term. It's really a a very firmly grounded uh, description.
2: Absolutely, because the founders of this organization openly admired what they called race pride in Germany, in Nazi Germany. So they said that the cleansing of the Jews was race pride. And this is a good lesson for us in what they call Hindustan. You know, they didn't like to say India or Bharat, which are the words in common parlance. They said Hindustan, which meant Hindu nation. And they said that the Indian Hindu nation can learn and profit by Nazi Germany. Leaders of others of their ideological stripe, for instance, uh, V.D. Savarkar, He had uh, also admired Mussolini, admired Hitler. He said in an interview to an American interviewer at the time, but he uh, openly said uh, that interviewer asked him, uh, how will Muslims be treated if you achieve this Hindu nation? And he said, uh, remember, this was 1930s. All right. So he said, well, uh, we'll treat them as the uh, black people are treated in America. The lynchings and the Jim Crow laws and you name it. That was his model. In their ideological framework, uh, Kashmir, not just Kashmir, but Kashmir, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, all this belong to what they call uh, the undivided Hindu nation. Essentially, what does that mean? They just believe that all this was actually once a Hindu nation. This is complete myth and uh, nonsense, of course. But they say that this is an undivided Hindu nation, which one day should retrieve uh, achieve that uh, goal again. Which is why you had India's Home Minister saying in Parliament, uh, "We will, we will conquer all these territories now, including
0: Aksai Chin, which is part of China." Inconveniently for this fantasy, there are a lot of non-Hindu people who live in these regions.
2: Well, yes, exactly. So that's the thing. So they, they, they it's complete Hindu fantasy, Hindu majoritarian fantasy, let me put it that way. It's not about Hindu identity, but about a, a fascist organization that is trying to harness Hindu uh, majoritarianism. So now in that scheme of things, they have always maintained that this Article 370 business. This was all Nambi Pambi Nehru, uh, who's responsible for making all these promises and whatnot. And we should, you know, Kashmir is just an integral part of India. Now, the problem with that story is that at that time, a whole lot, forget Kashmir, a whole lot of other principalities were not in an integral part of India. They had to be bribed or bullied or uh, wooed in order to become a part of India, which uh, Sadat Patel did. All right. So bribing, bullying, wooing, all that happened. They're misrepresenting history. Because had Nehru and Patel, and they claim that Patel did not want all those Nambi Pambi Article 370 offering special status to Kashmir or autonomy to Kashmir. But that's not true. Patel helped draft Article 370. And Article 370, had that not been offered by Patel and Nehru at that time, Kashmir would have simply said, no thanks, thanks, but no thanks. We'll remain independent. Oh, we'll go with Pakistan. Those options were open, which is why they had to offer this. Had they not offered... Article 370, no way would, would they have any legitimate claim over Kashmir, any pretense of a legitimate claim over Kashmir. This history is completely being uh, erased now. So I want to give you another piece of history. Junagadh was a principality, similar princely state, which was inside the Indian mainland. Now, the people of Junagadh were given a plebiscite, unlike the people of Kashmir. Why? Now, Junagadh had a Muslim ruler and a Hindu majority population, because they were confident that the, in, the Indian government of the time, Nehru's government at the time, was confident that uh, the people there were likely to vote in the plebiscite for India. They allowed the plebiscite to happen. So I'm saying that the whole position on whether anybody should be allowed a plebiscite now... I have to be very, very careful about the words I use here. So I'm making myself very clear. I, Kavita Krishnan of CPIML, I'm not recommending a plebiscite now or whatever it is. Okay, that is not what I'm saying. I'm simply explaining history. And I'm saying that, look, at that time, if you hear the RSS people, it's just Nambi Pambi Nehru who would talk about plebiscite and whatnot. What nonsense, how dare anybody be offered a plebiscite? The point is that your Sardar Patel did offer a plebiscite the person you say is your hero, Patel. he was behind the plebiscite to Janagar. And it was basic opportunism, right, that you were willing to offer a plebiscite when you think the plebiscite will go in your favor. You were willing to offer a plebiscite to Jammu and Kashmir when you thought that would go in your favor. But you withdrew the offer when you thought that it would no
0: longer go in your favor. That is history. I'm speaking with Kavita Krishnan, editor of Liberation, the journal of the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist, who is recently in Kashmir what do you suppose modi wants to do with kashmir what is what is his end game what is his strategy
2: end game is nothing he wants kashmir to burn they are least concerned about resolving the kashmir issue or any of that they are reasonably confident that india is this huge market and that most international uh, big powers will basically just look the other way and you know let india do what it likes so they're reasonably confident of that and they're just going to let kashmir burn and Kashmir burning, it is help, going to help bolster BJP's politics in India. So basically, it's being sold now to a, people who are learning their history lessons from uh, propaganda television channels. Almost all Indian channels are propaganda channels for the government now. And they are completely dangerously fascist. They're like Rwanda radio, okay? So uh, just yesterday, one of these channels has gone on and on about the four of us who visited Kashmir, showing our faces, naming our names, using, you know, sort of smart names for us and saying, basically, these are part of a gang that wants to break up India and seeking people on to either arrest us at best or worse, you know, just bump us off or whatever. People are taking their history lessons from this dangerous propaganda and so the modi government is showing to them is claiming that we have had the boldness to basically subdue and conquer a rebellious muslim territory which wanted to be go with pakistan because they are muslim no muslims can ever be truly loyal to a, to india which is basically always hindu this is the mythology of the rss but kashmir is the biggest example of this so kashmir wanting To separate from India, the whole dispute of the Kashmir dispute is explained in the simple terms that Muslims are always disloyal to India. And now look at how we have dealt with them. So you have a whole lot of people in India, including even in liberal sections, who otherwise are critical of the Modi government, who are shrugging their shoulders and saying, maybe this will resolve the issue. Maybe this will bring peace. And basically just looking the other way. I'm not saying everyone's doing this. There are many groups, many individuals, many civil society groups. And of course, left parties, which are out on the streets, agitating against this and speaking and persuading against this. And trying to explain to India, India's people of various other states as well, that, you know, uh, today it's Kashmir and they've done away with a page of India's own constitution. They're already coming for your rights and you're clapping for the abrogation of the rights of the Kashmiris. And uh, while you're doing that, they are stealing your rights from behind your back. They have just done away with minimum wage laws in India. Mr. Modi in today's speech on India's Independence Day has boasted that in the past five years he has done away with at least one, what he calls redundant law every year, every day. And he claims quite boldly in his speech that, oh, people don't even know that I've done this. My God, you have you know, done away with laws without telling people, without asking people, without getting it passed in parliament, and you're boasting about it.
0: Yeah, I don't mean to go all legalistic, but uh, the president can just unilaterally suspend an article of the Constitution.
2: They should not. It is completely illegal. It is completely unconstitutional, even by Indian legal standards. And since Kashmir is a a disputed, uh, there is a dispute there. So in international fora, as I said, India has always shown Article 370 as its alibi for being in Kashmir. And today they've just calmly done away with that. The UN ought to stand up and say something. Uh, Countries in the UN ought to do something. But uh, the point is that Mr. Modi, uh, sadly, is completely confident that they will not. He has Putin support. He has Trump support. Uh, no one else has said anything. Basically, uh, he's quite confident that he's going to get away with this.
0: And he's probably right about that, right?
2: That's what we are worry- worried about, because we feel like, all right, uh, what's going to happen now? We feel that it's really important for the truth to be out there, for people to learn and know about what's happening and try and raise their voices about what's happening. As simply citizens of the world, as people of who are uh, concerned about humanity, that an entire people has been locked up, an entire valley full of people is right now uh, simply in a large cage. And uh, essentially, will, uh, there is no pretense anymore of electoral democracy. All the so-called uh, pro-India parties, the parties that were arguing for being a part of India, were participating in the Indian democratic process, uh, they have all been locked up. Their leaders are in jail. There is no pretense even that any, any of this has been done with the will of the Kashmiri people. Okay? There's no pretense of that. I'm not trying to say everything was fine before. But at least then the pretense was that, all right, there are there's voting happening and there's an elected government and all of that. Today, all that is uh, thrown away.
0: And now you were recently part of a, a delegation that visited Kashmir. Uh, what, what did you hear from people? What, how are they reacting to these moves?
2: The reaction is a terrible, uh, you know, widespread fear, uh, apprehension, anger, anguish, des- desperation. And people are terribly angry. They see this as an act of humiliation. They all told us, look, we are, we are being treated like slaves. The um, Modi government is treating us like slaves. Uh, they are making it very clear that. And they, you know, in Kashmir, every child will give you this history lesson that, I just gave you all right, and in far greater detail, and they can, you know, you have um, Mr. Modi claims uh, that Kashmir lacks development. Well, actually, in comparison with a lot of uh, states in India, Kashmir has a very high level of education and uh, literacy. And so you'll find young men and women, including schoolgirls and schoolboys, schooling you on history and constitutional law and international law and the UN and the Geneva Convention and you name it okay you can't find that anywhere else in rural India I'll bet you so they they're they're upset they know what what this means and they're saying that essentially uh, you know we are just being held against our will and they're scared because their their children have In villages across South Kashmir, for instance, young boys as young as 9 or 10 years old have been picked up and held in illegal detention for days on end in police stations or even army camps where they're being beaten up. And um, the parents are scared because they didn't even want us to go and remonstrate with the police because they said, no, at least now when we go to the police station, we know our children are there. We are scared because there is no um, order or there is no written record of the arrest, right? Uh, so if the boy disappears, and there have been disappearances in Kashmir on a mass scale in the past, so they said if he if he's just disappeared, um, the police or the army or the paramilitary will simply say, Who? we, we never picked him up. Proof we picked him up. There's no proof. So they are terrified. And that's how, that. this is one of the means of keeping people under control, that we can just come barge into your homes in the middle of the night, pick up your kids and uh, keep them in our custody. And uh, you know that if you agitate, if you protest, even if you hold the most peaceful of protests, if you, mere, if you so much as speak on record to a camera, camera, uh, to a journalist, then, you know, your son is cooked.
0: Modi has been running a very business-friendly, neoliberal kind of economic policy. So he's got plenty of friends abroad. He's got friends in Silicon Valley. It's a picture of him hugging Mark Zuckerberg. There's not going to be much foreign complaint uh, about uh, these moves against Kashmir.
2: I don't know. I mean, I I guess, sadly, that's the cynical truth uh, in terms of governments. But I do feel that ordinary people, you know, we all speak, many of us speak uh, about things happening in the world. We are citizens of the world. We speak on Palestine, we speak on Yemen, we speak on Syria, we speak on uh, so much that is wrong with the world. All right. We speak on what is happening on America's borders now, even though we are here in India. So uh, if we do all of this, uh, surely, we should also, uh, as citizens of the world, uh, whether we have anything to do with India or South Asia or not, we should read up on Kashmir. We should, uh, uh, you know, publicize um, things that are being written from about Kashmir, things uh, reports that are coming out from Kashmir, and raise our voices uh, um, seeking justice for the people there. And of course, I'd also say here, um, just give me a second, Doug. I need to say this because I uh, another thing I worry about, and this is especially for. American and other global audiences, that, you know, the way in which India is perceived, there is a tendency to say, oh, uh, this is the largest democracy in the world. This is an elected government. So this is not just about Kashmir. I'm moving a little away from Kashmir also. And I'm saying even in general, uh, Mr. Modi belongs to a fascist organization. He is moving India towards what is a de facto, if not a de jure, Uh, Hindu nation, which is a fascist Hindu nation. India already has its first concentration camps where it is holding people whom it has declared to be stateless or whose nationality is suspected. So they are saying, oh, you are doubtful voters and we can hold you in the northeastern state of Assam. They are referring to people whom they are branding as infiltrators and calling them termites. Okay, So that is dehumanizing language and they're going to uh, have this national register of citizens all over India, where they're saying, um, even if you're a Hindu from Bangladesh, uh, we will give you Indian citizenship, so Hindus won't have to prove their citizenship. But every Muslim in India will be suspected of being Bangladeshi, and we'll have to prove that their ancestors came here before 1951. So they're going to uh, sort or 1971 when Bangladesh was formed. So they're going to uh, extend this to the to the whole of the country and create a huge number of stateless citizens or a stateless people, like the Rohingya crisis. Uh, when all this is happening, when Muslims are being lynched by uh, far-right mobs in India, I look with uh, complete horror to see that, uh, you know, there are uh, stand-up comics whom I respect, like Trevor Noah, who are doing stories uh, comparing Imran Khan of Pakistan with Trump. Sorry, that's not a comparison that will wash. Okay, Mr. Modi has a lot more in common with Trump in terms of his xenophobia and Islamophobia than his Imran Khan, in terms of his, uh, you know, fascist fantasies than Imran Khan. Please follow, on, uh, follow up on that. You look at what, um, you look at Bear Grylls, the Discovery Channel guy, doing these, uh, you know, stories with Mr. Modi, giving credence to his completely unverified stories about how he has spent a long time in the jungle, okay? There's no coverage to the fact that Mr. Modi, along with his corporate crony um, Adani, is destroying large tracts of forests in India, as well as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, all right? Uh, So I wish that this stuff could be highlighted and this myth, you know, Modi ranks right up there with Trump, with Bolsonaro, with uh, Duterte, with Erdogan and with Putin and all these people. He ranks up there. (laughs) So we need to start talking about India in these terms. I feel like we are in the 1930s Germany. We are reliving that right now in India. And I feel like the world is standing around and saying, oh, how nice. Oh, I have to tell you this. The German ambassador to India, German ambassador, Walter Lindner, he recently visited the headquarters of that same fascist organization I just mentioned, the RSS, in Nagpur, and touched the feet in homage of the founder of that, uh, of a statue of the founder of that organization, that German ambassador, and he, when he was asked about it, that, oh, my God, these people were literally Nazis, he answered, oh, they're all part of the mosaic that is India. You know, so how come fascists are part of mosaic when they're in India? But they're not part of the mosaic when they're in Europe, right? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go shake hands with neo-Nazis in Germany.
0: <laughs> I was Kavita Krishnan, a leader of the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist, and editor of its journal, Liberation. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this: some of Beethoven's Bagatelle, Opus One Twenty Six, Number Two, performed by Alfred Brendel. Till next week, bye.